Well, thank you and good morning, everyone. Uh, my name's Drew, and I'm going to help us hopefully think through uh, the, the next stage of our journey through Daniel. Um, we're going to be looking at Daniel chapter 4. Uh, it'll be a while before I get to that, but if you, wanna have, a, if you have a Bible and want to look that up, uh, it's Daniel chapter 4. In the Pew Bibles, it's page 887. Um, but as I say, it'll be a little second before I get to that, so you've got a minute or so to find it. Um, as I've said embarrassingly from this pulpit before, um, I love a good TV show. And it's been a revelation in our house since we got Netflix a couple of months ago. And we are finally catching up on what seems like everyone else has been talking about in the whole world for the last five, six years. Uh, and I particularly love those dramas that start with the ending. And then you have a flashback of, you know, two hours before or two weeks before or whatever. I love those, the suspense that that builds. And in Daniel chapter 4, we get something similar here with Nebuchadnezzar. You see, in chapters 2 and 3, those chapters have ended with Nebuchadnezzar giving some kind of recognition or some kind of appreciation for the God of Daniel and his three friends. However, in chapter 4, we see the chapter starting with Nebuchadnezzar giving that sense of praise. And as you can see from Daniel, from the first two verses that I'll just read quickly, King Nebuchadnezzar to the peoples, nations, and men of every language who live in all the world, may you prosper greatly. And by the way, we've now jumped into a totally different type of text. This is a letter, clearly. Uh, it, goes, it follows all of the models of an ancient Near East letter that the king is writing out to people. So rather than hearing Daniel's words at the minute, these are coming straight from the pen of Nebuchadnezzar. In verse 2, it says, It is my pleasure to tell you about the miraculous signs and wonders that the Most High God has performed for me. And so there's been a, a turning of the tide somehow, and something has shifted in Nebuchadnezzar's thinking towards God, and we are now invited to figure out what has happened by reading through and studying the rest of Daniel chapter 4. But before we get into that, so far in our discussions, uh, we've seen and we've been rightly looking at how Daniel and his three friends have been trying hard to keep the faith. And that's been worthy of attention because the culture and the context that they find themselves in now is a foreign one. And not only that, the culture and the context is very often at war with the faith that they are trying to keep. And we've seen incredible acts of courage and defiance and conviction and compromise and wisdom and tact and prayer and praise. And now, and so far and through all of that, we've been looking at the faith of Daniel and his three friends. They have very much been the main characters up to this point. But in chapter four, there's a shift. And Daniel is still involved, as we'll see. But the bulk of the chapter, as I've already said, is Nebuchadnezzar's own thoughts, his own reflections. And we've heard Nebuchadnezzar's words before. Uh, we've heard him speak. We've even heard him praise God before, as I've said. But something's different here. This is his own words and there's something significant about them. And chapter four also marks the end of Nebuchadnezzar's reign as king of Babylon. And there's no real fuss made about that. Actually, chapter four ends with the words of Nebuchadnezzar and chapter five starts with King Belshazzar and away we go. And so there's no fuss made about the end of that, about the end of his reign. But in the midst of all of that, in the midst of the succession, I don't want us to miss the fact that chapter four is also the greatest insight we get into Nebuchadnezzar's journey of developing a deep faith through the ministry of Daniel. And as we look at that, as we think of how Nebuchadnezzar has journeyed over the first four chapters of this book, I've, I was struck by how it reminded me of this funnel. Whereas in chapter one, 
we see Nebuchadnezzar beseeching Jerusalem, clearly no respect for the God of the Jews, destroys the temple, takes some of the precious temple artifacts back to his temple of his pagan gods in Babylon, clearly no respect for the God of the Jews there. Then chapter two, Nebuchadnezzar has a dream, and Daniel, who is now in captive in Babylon, is the only bloke in the whole kingdom who can interpret this dream. And so Nebuchadnezzar thinks, okay, there's something special about this guy. But Daniel goes to great lengths to explain to Nebuchadnezzar that it is because of his most high God who has revealed the interpretation of the dream that makes it so significant. And so chapter two ends with Nebuchadnezzar appreciating or respecting the revealer of mysteries, the God of Daniel, the revealer of mysteries. And so we can see something starting to open, but it's almost as if Nebuchadnezzar is staring at that and appreciating it from a distance, like someone looking at a great piece of art in a gallery. It's not personal. And chapter three gets a little bit more in depth. Nebuchadnezzar set up this monstrosity of a statue and and ordered that everybody bow down and worship it. Daniel's three friends don't, and so they they are punished as the edict said they would be. But somehow, miraculously, there's an intervention by the true God, and Nebuchadnezzar is bowled over. And so in awe, we see him praising the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He even makes it illegal in the land for anyone to say anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. But it is still the God of someone else. It seems Nebuchadnezzar hasn't quite figured out that their God could be his God until we get to chapter four. And this is where I think there's a culmination of all that has gone before. Because in those first two verses, let's just look at those again. It is my pleasure to tell you about the miraculous signs and wonders that the Most High has performed for me, said Nebuchadnezzar. And look at that last statement. He has performed for me. Nebuchadnezzar has now had a personal appreciation and encounter with the God that he had up to this point appreciated from afar. And as one of the commentators on this, Jared Kelly, has said, that by the end of chapter three, Nebuchadnezzar has come to recognize the power of Daniel's God and to respect him. But by the end of chapter four, this is over. His recognition of Yahweh is complete and he is content simply to worship. So something significant happens in chapter four and God is gonna do something significant in Nebuchadnezzar's life. And of course, the first three chapters have been the foundation blocks to this encounter, but this is gonna be something significant. And so let's think about the course of events that unfold through this chapter and how they lead Nebuchadnezzar to this incredible, incredible discovery. Uh, If you don't mind, I'll just explain and talk through the first half and then we'll read the second half together. And so the letter that Nebuchadnezzar writes in Daniel 4 is explaining to the world that he's had another dream. And this dream is as confusing and as distressing as some of the others he's had because he doesn't have a clue what it's about. And in the dream, Nebuchadnezzar sees a giant tree And the tree touches the sky, and in its vastness it provides beauty and food and shelter for anyone who would seek it. And then there's a message, and a heavenly message from on high, Nebuchadnezzar says, that brings a sense of peril to it, that explains that the tree should be cut down. But it's not all doom and gloom. There's hope because the root and the stump of the tree is to remain now, it's going to go through some hard times. It's going to, the, the root and the stump, which is then personified as a he, which we'll come back to later. Uh, so the root and the stump, he is going to suffer for seven times, which is generally understood to mean seven years. 
So for seven years, the root of the kingdom, the stump of the kingdom is going to suffer until that time is over. And so yes, there's a message of peril, but there's also a message of hope that there will be an end to that. And what we want to do now is pick it up when Daniel intervenes, because Nebuchadnezzar doesn't understand what this dream means, so again calls for Daniel. And Daniel comes and not only interprets, but, but retells part of the dream too. So that's where we're going to pick it up in verse 19 of chapter 4. And as, as our practice here on Windsor, if you'd like to stand with me for the public reading of God's word, that would be fantastic. So Daniel chapter 4, starting at verse 19. Then Daniel, also called Belteshazzar, which of course was his Babylonian name that was given to him, was greatly perplexed for a time, and his thoughts terrified him. So the king said, Belteshazzar, do not let the dream or its meaning alarm you. Belteshazzar answered, my lord, if only the dream applied to your enemies and its meaning to your adversaries. The tree that you saw, which grew large and strong with its top touching the sky and visible to the whole earth with beautiful leaves and abundant fruit, providing food for all, giving shelter to the beasts of the field and having nesting places in its branches for the birds of the air. You, O king, are that tree. You've become great and strong. Your greatness has grown until it reaches the skies and your dominion extends to distant parts of the earth. You, O king, saw a messenger, a holy one, coming down from heaven and saying, cut down the tree and destroy it, but leave the stump bound with iron and bronze in the grass of the field while its roots remain in the ground. Let it be drenched with the dew of heaven. Let him live like the wild animals until seven times pass by for him. This is the interpretation, O king, and this is the decree the Most High has issued against my Lord the King. You will be driven away from your people and will live like, like the wild animals. You will eat grass like the cattle and be drenched with the dew of heaven. Seven times will pass by for you until you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over the kingdoms of men and gives them to anyone he wishes. The command to leave the stump of the tree with its roots means your kingdom will be restored to you when you acknowledge that heaven rules. Therefore, O king, be pleased to accept my advice. Renounce your sins by doing what is right and your wickedness by being kind to the oppressed. It may be that then your prosperity will continue. All this happened to King Nebuchadnezzar. Twelve months later, as the king was walking on the roof of the royal palace in Babylon, he said, Is not this the great Babylon I have built as a royal residence by my mighty power and for the glory of my majesty? The words were still on his lips when a voice came from heaven. This is what is decreed for you, King Nebuchadnezzar. Your royal authority has been taken from you. You will be driven away from people and live with the wild animals. You will eat grass like cattle. Seven times will pass by for you until you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over the kingdoms of men and gives them to anyone he wishes. Immediately, what had been said about Nebuchadnezzar was fulfilled. He was driven away from people and ate grass like cattle. His body was drenched with the dew of heaven until his hair grew like the feathers of an eagle and his nails like the claws of a bird. At, that, at the end of that time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, who's taken over writing again, raised my eyes towards heaven and my sanity was restored. Then I praised the Most High. I honored and glorified him who lives forever. His dominion is an eternal dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the peoples of the earth are regarded as nothing. He does as he pleases with the powers of heaven and the peoples of the earth. No one can hold back his hand or say to him, what have you done? At the same time that my sanity was restored, my honor and splendor were returned to me for the glory of my kingdom. My advisors and nobles sought me out and I was restored to my throne and became even greater than before. 
Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and glorify and exalt the kingdom of heaven because everything he does is right and all his ways are just. And those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. Grab your seats for me then. So what can we tell and what can we learn from this weird dream, this interpretation uh, from so long ago? And I think that this is another strange dream, but I think it can help us in our lessons on how we try to develop deep faith as we've been trying to see through this whole series. And we can learn many things, but I just want to hone in on one particular aspect of the story. And that is how Nebuchadnezzar initially responds to the prompting that God gives through the dream. And the, re- the reason why I want to see that is because throughout the encounters that we've seen through the book of Daniel, I think it's clear that the response to the prompting of God is an indicator of the depth of someone's faith. The response to the prompting of God is an indicator of the depth of someone's faith. And as we've examined in previous weeks, the sovereign God has been prompting individuals at every stage so far. And now in chapter four, we see God's prompting is not confined to those who, who already follow him. But Nebuchadnezzar receives the message of God through a dream, which enables Daniel then to bring the word of God to him. And it's this response that Nebuchadnezzar initially makes to the prompting of God that I want us to consider. Because I don't know about you, but Sometimes I think I can be very quick to jump at Nebuchadnezzar or other people like him in the Bible and think about all the things that he did wrong and think about how silly he must have been to do those things. Here's a man who's received an explicit and clear message from the sovereign almighty God, but his immediate response doesn't seem to be appropriate. I mean, how could he miss it? God couldn't have been any clearer, could he? See, his response should have been, as Daniel pleaded with him in verse 27, renounce your sins by doing what is right and your wickedness by being kind to the oppressed. But Nebuchadnezzar doesn't seem to respond in that way at all, certainly not straight away. And we see from the, verses, from the start of verse 29 that 12 months later, all of this happened to Nebuchadnezzar. The dream, or, or, or should we more rightly think about the, the nightmare, becomes a reality for Nebuchadnezzar. So what happened? He got the warning He had the chance to to change his ways, but he didn't. What got in the way? What stopped him from responding to the prompting of God? And I think, you see, as God was prompting Nebuchadnezzar, the thing that stopped him from responding was his pride. Nebuchadnezzar was a proud man, and I think it's that pride that gets in the way of his response to the prompting of God. And now, unfortunately, I find myself getting very uncomfortable because I can't now stand at the sidelines and look at Nebuchadnezzar judgmentally and think, how silly is this guy? Because the questions I would ask of him, I can now direct firmly towards myself. How could you be so ignorant? How could you miss what God is saying? How could you not respond to such a clear and direct message? Let's take the heat off ourselves for a while and consider the message that God is giving to Nebuchadnezzar. So as we've seen in the dream, Nebuchadnezzar sees this giant tree and that tree is a picture of himself and his great kingdom. And the kingdom is hugely successful. As Nebuchadnezzar was standing in the the, the royal residence in Babylon, he would have looked out and saw two of the great wonders of the ancient world, the hanging gardens which he had built and the great walls around the city of Babylon. This was a great kingdom. It seems this picture of a tree is pretty accurate. And the dream continues and we have the arrival of the messenger or the watchman who brings this message of peril. The tree is to be cut down but not totally destroyed. The roots are to remain 
although for seven years the roots would be cast out and live like a wild animal. There is a limit to that punishment, and after that seven years, hopefully, when the root of the kingdom, when Nebuchadnezzar would recognize that the sovereign God is in control, then things might be restored to him. And so this dream, matched with Daniel's interpretation, should have been the prompting that Nebuchadnezzar needed to change. But the dream did not have that preventative effect as we might have hoped. Nebuchadnezzar's pride, it seems, grows even more. And he gets deluded by this message that, that actually he is a god. He has created this brilliant empire. He has provided wonderful things for his people. He is a powerful man. Maybe people should be worshiping him. And we see this in, most evidently in verse 30, where Nebuchadnezzar says, Is not this the great Babylon I have built? as a royal residence, by my mighty power and for the glory of my majesty. I mean, just look at that. The, the great Babylon I have built by my mighty power for the glory of my majesty. I mean, how arrogant are those words? And so in a world of thinking, the world of him, in the moment of thinking the world of himself, he's thrown from his palace, stripped of his worldly power and left in the wilderness. And as one commentator has helpfully put, a man who thinks he is like a god must become a beast to learn he is only a human being. But before we go further, let's be clear about something. The problem here is not with the success that Nebuchadnezzar had. It, it, the problem was who he recognized as the author of that success. So God doesn't come after Nebuchadnezzar, it seems, because he's got a big empire and because he's orchestrated some of the best and most impressive construction projects the world has ever seen. No, the message from God and the prompting from God is, Nebuchadnezzar, you've hogged the glory for yourself, and that's not right. Nebuchadnezzar didn't recognize that the sovereign God was ultimately in control. And perhaps you think this has got very little to do with us in our current culture and context, and yes, not many of us are kings and queens of great empires, unless you're playing some kind of fantasy game. But however, in some way, Nebuchadnezzar's pride, the way in which his pride stopped him from responding to the message of God, I think that's where we see how this impacts us. And as one commentator on this, Longman, who's got a great name, it's like Tremond Longman III, brilliant. What else could he be but a theologian? Um, he said, Christians are not immune from a pride that removes our eyes from God and places them squarely on ourselves. He goes on to say, indeed, it is precisely in situations like ours in the West where we do not face active persecution that this danger is most obvious. See, we're not immune from this pride that takes our eyes off God and focuses them squarely on ourselves. And it's relatively easy for us in this comfortable society and environment that we live in to manage day by day without noticing the simple yet profound gifts that God gives us that allows us to simply exist, let alone flourish. See, it's easy to assume and simple to assume that our relative wealth and comfort and success and provision are, are down to our talents and our abilities. But what Nebuchadnezzar's experience helps us to realize is that in everything, God is in control. God is sovereign. It is all because of God. We are all good at what we're good at because we're made in God's image. It's all because of God. And yet I know for me, I look at my life sometimes and my, what I think is success and think that I've done a decent job or I've handled that situation well or I've provided well for my family or I live in a nice house and I've got a decent job so haven't I done well? 
But what Nebuchadnezzar's account shows me is that that type of pride, it means that I miss out on something. And I miss out on recognizing that God is the author of all those good things and I am merely a recipient of his good grace. And so I miss out on the freedom that knowing that God is in control so all I have to do is trust. I miss out on the comfort and security from knowing that God doesn't change regardless of how my circumstances might. I miss out on the assurance from verse 37 that everything he does is just and all his ways are right. And so he is totally reliable. As we've even thought about communion this morning, on a bigger picture as we try to rescue ourselves in an eternal way, we can't do anything. God has done it all for us. We are recipients of the good gifts that God gives. And what all this shows fairly uncomfortably is that that it is only God who deserves our praise. It's only God who's worthy of that. When we try to steal it for ourselves, it, it warps us somehow. We can't handle it. We weren't designed to handle it. See, we were designed to be worshipers, not to be worshipped. So we don't deserve the glory because we, we, aren't the, or we aren't the author of the glory. Only our God is worthy of that. And in carrying pride, like Nebuchadnezzar did, like I so often do, we close ourselves off from the prompting of God. And therefore, there's the potential that we miss the freedom that he wants us to walk in. So then how do we, how do we stave that off pride? How do we protect ourselves from pride? How do we try to live in the humble way that Nebuchadnezzar ended up living in? Well, I think like Nebuchadnezzar, it's an issue of perspective that we need to increase our understanding of the vastness of God, the power of God and how we worship him. And Heather has so helpfully led us through that this morning. Because in that light, we then rightfully see our strengths and our weaknesses and our successes and our failures in light of his ultimate glory. And so whether you're on the top of the world this morning with success, whatever that, however that manifests itself for you, or whether you're in the deepest, darkest valley this morning, the message is the same. God is in control. God is worthy of praise. God knows what he's doing, even though the circumstances around you might not look like that. Just imagine for the moment, you, if you were an Israelite living at the time of Daniel, you've been taken into captive in Babylon. It does not look like your God is in control. How much then would you, your heart have been lifted when you heard Nebuchadnezzar starting to praise your God? All of a sudden, you're bombarded with this message of, yeah, the God that I worship is better and stronger and mightier than the earthly superpower that literally bulldozed my world to the ground. That's the type of God that we worship. So whether you're on the mountaintop or in the deepest valley, please know God is with you. God is with you on the mountain and he's with you in the fire. And maybe by being together this morning, we can help one another to lift our eyes towards heaven as Nebuchadnezzar did. And we see our God is greater, our God is stronger than whatever it is we're going through. And when Nebuchadnezzar gained this experience, look in verse 34, his response. Then I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eye towards heaven and my sanity was restored. Then I praised the Most High. I honored and glorified him who lives forever. See, in this change of perspective, totally transformed Nebuchadnezzar. And a guy who's written about this called Jared Kelly has said that the reality of a sovereign God floors him 
And when he gets up off the floor, he's a different man. The reality of a sovereign God floors him. And when he gets up off the floor, he's a different man. And this, I think, is where I see evidence of a deep faith. People who are transformed in their outlook and in their priorities and in their perspectives because they know who God is and they know who they are in front of him. And that might all sound well and good, um, but it maybe also sounds a little bit pie in the sky. I mean, how, how do we do this? How do we, how do we understand the might of God? How do we get a bigger picture of God? Well, it might sound bizarre and it might sound paradoxical, but I actually think that to get a bigger and help us obtain a bigger perspective of God, we recognize his hand in the small things. So like the wonderful ad campaign from Ikea suggests that we appreciate the wonderful every day. The wonderful every day. I think, thanks, Sarah. I think, that the, I think that is so true. So be thankful for the food in front of you when you go home today. Be thankful for the family that you live with, the neighbors around you. Be thankful for the church that you're part of. Yes, those are bigger things that are maybe more obvious. And so what I want to suggest is maybe we go deeper than that. And we become thankful for the way we see God's fingerprints in places that we don't expect it. So that stranger who holds the door open for you, that person who lets you out at the junction, I mean, who does that? The way that you connect with someone over a cup of coffee, these are all great gifts that God gives us. These are his fingerprints on our world. And what I think happens is when we start to notice and become more God-aware in our wonderful everyday then actually we learn to tune in more to what God's doing. And as we tune in more to what God's doing, we become more thankful. As we become more thankful, we tune in more to what he's doing. As we tune in more to what he's doing, we become more thankful. And therefore, pride is never an issue. We're so God-aware that we forget about ourselves in some ways. And so as we conclude by considering how today's message might help us become people of deep faith, who respond to the prompting of God, then I believe we protect ourselves from pride by being thankful for the small things which ultimately point us towards our great God so that we might all say like Nebuchadnezzar, now I praise and exalt and glorify the King of heaven because everything he does is right and all his ways are just and those who walk in pride he is able to humble.